This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers clients earn up to 4.83% on their uninvested, instantly available cash balances? In fact, you need to ask, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Compare IBKR's ability to pay interest of up to 4.83% to other brokers who can only often pay you less than half a percent. That's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks, options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. When placing your money with a broker, you need to make sure your broker is secure and can endure good and bad times. IBKR strong capital position, conservative balance sheet, and automated risk controls are designed to protect IBKR and its clients from large trading losses. Their prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions IBKR to pay you interest rates higher with demonstrated security and financial strength. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Interactive Brokers is a member of SIPC. Visit IBKR.com slash interest rates to learn more. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. The U.S. debt rating is cut down. Most earnings are out, and we have the results. Weekly oil inventories, largest drawdown ever. And our guest today is Cullen Roche, founder of Discipline Funds. All this and much more on episode number 828 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome to August, when markets usually start to get a little squirrely. And that they did this week after the surprise downgrade of the U.S. debt rating by Fitch. Downgraded from AAA to AA+, which is the second time we've seen that in the last I don't know, dozen years uh, from a different rating agency last time, though. Well, let me say hi before we go any further. For those that of you are new, of course, that maybe just stumbled upon, came upon, were told or maybe were ordered to listen to this podcast. I'm the host of this, what I call fine podcast, which I think like a good fine wine gets better with time. My name is Andrew Horowitz and I am the, the host as well as the CEO, the founder of Horowitz, a company where we actually manage money. So a lot of what we talk about here is from the commentary discussions, the meetings, the decisions that we make each and every day throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the year for our clients' portfolio. So it's not this ethereal discussion about, uh, you know, maybe could be, and we didn't really, you know, two guys sitting there, two gals sitting there, have nothing to do with the markets, just talking about what could be. No, this is the real stuff. That's what we talk about here. If you want to know more about what we do, head over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Maybe it's time to start working together, especially with uh, the squirreliness that I think we're going to see uh, over the next month or so. There you go. So it was an interesting move this week by Fitch. 
and I'm sure we're going to talk about this with our guest, Colin Roche, but almost almost 12 years to the day. It was back, I believe, on August 5th, 2011, that the S&P, you know, Standard Poor's, downgraded the U.S. debt rating. And that that at that time sent some shockwaves. It was the first time, I, I think, ever, really, that, that that happened, and at least in recent history. And uh, that sent some shockwaves through the system, and that downgrade was really kind of pretty ugly. Now, of course, in this instance right now, we had Janet Yellen and the Biden administration, you know, oh, we strongly disagree with the decisions that you made there, but you have to listen to what Fitch said. And I'm going to read you some of the discussion because I think it was really important to understand in the context of what Fitch was talking about, why all of a sudden did this happen? So from the ratings downgrade standpoint, they said the ratings downgrade in the United States reflects the expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years, a high and growing general government debt burden, and the erosion of governance relative to AA and AAA rated peers over the last two decades. So for the last 20 years, they're talking about an erosion of governance that has manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last minute resolutions. Now they talk about this erosion of governance. They went into detail about this. And, and, and to that point, they said, in Fitch's view, there has been steady deterioration in standards of governance over the last 20 years, including on fiscal and debt matters, notwithstanding the June bipartisan agreement to suspend the debt limit until January 2025. Right there, in my opinion, was cause for a downgrade anyway, that on its own, standalone. Um, the re- they say the repeated debt limit political standoffs and last minute resolutions have eroded confidence in fiscal management. No kidding. In addition, the government lacks a medium-term fiscal framework, unlike most peers, and has a complex budgeting process. These factors, along with several economic shocks, as well as tax cuts and new spending initiatives, have contributed to successive debt increases over the last decade. Additionally, there has only been limited progress in tackling medium-term challenges related to rising Social Security and Medicare costs due to an aging population. There's a lot more, but but you get the picture. What they're basically saying, which was we all know, but we've all thrown away and said, who cares? Nobody seems to care. Nobody seems to care. Because the Fed was managing the debt so uh, extensively. I didn't want to say so wonderfully right now, so extensively. They have, I mean, they, they are really, you know, this, this capital market theory that we all have a free capital markets is pretty much BS at this point. You have the Fed that is micromanaging every part of the curve, not only here, but all around the world. Some places around the world are even buying directly into stock markets to prop up stocks. Japan. So here we are in a situation where we get a downgrade really at a really terrible moment in time. Because right now, as we have seen recently, the good news that we've seen in the economy and the better than expected, I would say, lack of a recession has been something that has been Very good for equities, been good for markets in general, the financial systems, et cetera. However, with this downgrade, it makes it much more difficult for the Fed to maneuver to a degree because now all of a sudden the lower uh, lower rated bonds may cost them more. And we had seen interest rates holding below the 4% range for some time and then they popped this week, didn't they? Right over that 4% line, which is a demarcation point that everybody's looking at, that if it holds over there more than a couple of days, we may see four and a quarter on the 10-year coming up. And that is going to be a problem for the long end of the curve. And that, 
in itself is going to be a problem with valuations for some of the big boys, some of the big names uh, in, in the stock world. It hasn't really affected them yet, but you get to a point in equilibrium beyond that, it becomes a real problem. And this comes at a time when we're seeing a pickup in commodity prices. We're seeing a pickup in overall um, economic activity in the U.S., in the U.S. And some really fascinating discussion that I'm going to get to from FactSet about the earnings and the differential between the companies that are domestically, uh, you know, they get their money domestically with regard to um, uh, uh, revenue and where they derive their earnings from and internationally. And the split is pretty dramatic. We'll talk about that in terms of the two sides of who's making money and who's not. Really interesting. Now there's also been, uh, we'll kind of move over to what's going on in the world of crude. This pipes in to the discussion of what is happening with potential inflationary trends moving forward. Because crude has been, it's been fascinating over the last, I would say, month or so. We're up like 20%. We went to $82 from 60-ish, then slipping down a little bit on some of the fears after the Fitch downgrade. And some of the, uh, interestingly, uh, one of the biggest crude weekly drawdowns in history. Listen to these numbers, you know, as compares and as the compared to. So we're going to give you the inventory draw that we had last week and then the compared to. Crude oil inventories last week had a draw of 17 million barrels. The prior works, prior week showed a draw of only 600,000. 17 million versus 600,000 in a week. Gasoline inventories, interestingly, had a build. Now, that was probably from some of the processing of the oil into gasoline. Prior week showed a draw of about 786. That should be actually, in a really weird way, good and bad. It should be good for gas prices because there's a lot more gas. But we also know that people are traveling a lot more and we have a lot more planes in the air and all those things that are going on with the refining process. Uh, but it's pretty interesting that we saw that big draw. wonder what's going on with that if someone was thinking, I don't know, that there's a big need. Now, what what could it be a replenishment of the SPR possibly? Maybe. But this is a big number. Now, oil did not hold up on this, so you got to scratch your head and wonder what's happening there. Drop down, uh, I think it was on the news, it dropped down a couple percent. Now, we discussed earnings season. And one stock that I thought was really a turning point in terms of a reality check this week was, was AMD. And the reason why I mentioned AMD is because I've been watching that and, and you know the whole hype around the potential. But yet we know that we've seen a lot of companies come out with a discussion that PC sales, which is a big part of them, and some other areas in terms of cloud, maybe uh, slowing down a little bit, slowing the roll. And AMD was on my mind because I was looking at that and I thought it was really when they came out with their numbers, very weak report. The only thing that was good about the report, and I, I heard a few TV personalities saying they thought it was good, but I, I didn't see anything really very good in there. Uh, maybe one quadrant, but everything else was down, 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 down. The only thing that that I think was getting people excited on the report after hours during the conference call was the constant use of AI, and that they're trying to, thinking about maybe, who knows, we're going to see what we're going to do. It's going to be an effort that we're going to partake in getting an AI chip that can compete with NVIDIA. But that was like on the come. And it may be out in the future. By the time they do that, it's probably going to be light years ahead what other companies have. 
And you can't hide behind AI forever. The stock was up dramatically, you know, like eight or nine points after the bell. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, who in their right mind likes this report from any aspect? Maybe you want to say, okay, it's a bottoming process. And this, this could be the last of the bad quarters for AMD. Maybe. Then you take the bright side, the silver lining. Well, things aren't that good, but they're really stepping up their game. They're cutting expenses, and maybe they're going to have a competition chip to some of the other chips out there for AI, et cetera, and, and that's going to draw a lot of benefit. Okay. But you know what? Everything that I saw when I read it over and over again was like, no, not so good. Meanwhile, there it was. Off report, stock turned sharply lower on Thursday so reality set in for a lot of these, like what we're seeing uh, for uh, the companies that are going bankrupt, like a Tupperware, for example, like a Yellow. Have you seen those stocks ramp up 500% on their commentary that they're going through, going to go through bankruptcy? Uh, really fascinating. All right, let's talk about uh, the earnings scorecard. Again, we're going to probably talk about some of this. I have some recent reads from FactSet that I'm going to talk about with our guest here. And see what he thinks when we get to the maybe get to some earnings discussion. But I want to talk to you about what I read in the highlights. And I would like you to just read these facts and put them somewhere just to think about with what you've seen in the stock market move recently. And this is definitely a stock picker's market. It's no question about that. What that means is, yes, the markets are moving up on their, you know, just levitating, if you will. But coming into where we are with mixed results. All right, here, let's just talk about this. Earnings scorecard. This is from FactSet. Earnings scorecard for Q2 2023. With, with, this is um, just the end of last week. This came out. Or, the yeah, just the end of last week. Just the beginning of this week. Just a few days ago. 51%. Uh, now, this week, we're going to have a total about 70-something percent. Basically... Um, 51% of the companies reporting, 80% have reported a positive EPS surprise, and 64% of the S&P companies have reported a positive revenue surprise. That in itself is about on par, a little bit better from an EPS standpoint, a little bit light for a revenue uh, on average. On average, earnings declined for Q2. This is where it gets good. For Q2 2023, the blended earnings decline for the S&P 500 is... Negative 7.3. Now, I thought it was going to be a negative 6.8 from everything that I read, which is a little bit better than was anticipated. But if, if 7.3 is the actual decline for the quarter, it will mark the largest earnings decline reported for the index since Q2 2020, which we know ha what happened there in the March-April zone. A negative 31% earnings decline because we were closed. Everything is open, by the way, right now. And we're still looking at a negative 7.3%. Now, again, the silver lining crowd out there would say, well, when it gets this bad, it's time to buy. But hold on. What's in the future, right? Earnings revisions. On June 30th, the estimated earnings decline was for 7%. Four sectors are reporting lower earnings uh, compared to, uh, well, the four sectors were on there due to negative EPS. Um, earnings guidance. So, so just to get back to that, 7% versus 7.3. So on, on the 30th of June, the estimates for earnings decline was 7%. The reality, a month and a week later, is a 7.3% worse decline. Earnings guidance. 
for quarter three of 2023. 27 S&P 500 have, companies have issued negative guidance, and 18 companies have issued positive guidance. That's only the companies that are issuing any guidance. Valuation. The forward 12-month P.E. ratio for the S&P 500 now is 19.4. The P.E. ratio ratio is above the five-year average of 18.6 and above the 10-year average of 17.4. So a little bit of a taste of what's going on there, which I'll give you the punchline on, on this, is that earnings are up. They're up in a certain amount of sectors, the ones that count for the indices, like some of the technology, information technology, communication services, et cetera, down in others, like energy's taken a big hit on their year-over-year -year earnings. And why is that? Because they were so great a year ago. So maybe the concept is, you know, when we rotate from the good to the bad, the bad to the good, that's what's going on. But I think there's a lot more to this. You got to be a really interesting person to believe that you could be buying stocks on downward earnings. Yes. The estimates going out to 2024 are looking for, you know, another 10% increase over the next year. And you multiply that out by the uh, current P.E. ratio. You know, you're talking about uh, probably close to a 4,800 number on the S&P 500, considering a current P.E. ratio. But what if, what if, what if? That's the question. What if we go back to the P.E. ratio where it was a year ago? or the average long-term. Now you're talking about a significantly lower number. You drop that PE by 10% and the multiplied factor is pretty significant when you look at the valuation potential moving forward. Before we go any further and we get to our guest in a moment, I wanna to talk to you just for a second about Interactive Brokers because Interactive Brokers charges margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%, rated the lowest margin fees by stockbrokers.com. Their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. Join Interactive Brokers clients from over 200 countries and territories to invest in stocks and options, futures, and funds, and bonds globally. Minimize your cost to maximize your returns. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com compare. So let's get right to our guest, and that's Cullen Roche. She's the founder and chief investment officer of Discipline Funds, a provider of multi-asset, low-cost ETFs and financial advisory services. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Pragmatic Capitalism, as well as the blog by the same name. He began his career in the financial services with Merrill Lynch Global Wealth Management and has been independent for almost two decades now. Uh, so we welcome back. The last time that you were on was in uh, 2015, Cullen. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing great to be back. I know. It's been a while. It's been a while. You've gotten married. You have kids. You, I got two kids. You got two kids. You're crazy. Married. Look at you. New, new business. It's all going yeah. on. Now, I just I want like to make that, uh, I, like you, I like that you wait almost 10 years to have me back. You, people don't want to hear from me too often. So, you yeah, know, no, this is, this is the key. Yeah. So I'll see you again. Let's, let's book now for uh, 2033. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark your calendars. <laughs> um, hey, I want to mention a couple of things. First of all, before we start, I want to mention that discipline funds and the discipline investor, totally different, no relationship at all. That's fine. But I want to make sure people are very clear about that before we start our discussion on this. Okay. So it, what are your thoughts on uh, discipline? Like, what, is, what does that mean to you when it comes to investing? Well, it's interesting, you know, over the course of my career, I've 
you know, there's a lot of academic work that supports certain approaches and strategies and, you know, various things that we try to do to achieve the, you know, the optimal portfolio, the optimal return, the optimal financial plan. And I've realized over interacting with people directly that you can implement what is an, the academically, you know, theoretically perfect plan. But if someone's behavior doesn't match with that plan, they will not stick with it. Mm. And so you end up in the situation in a lot of cases where the suboptimal plan that somebody can stick with is actually superior than the theoretical optimal plan that people abandon over time. Oh, I like that. It's like it's like a diet, right? So it's like, you know, you can totally. only eat you can only eat chicken three times a day and you're like, okay, and that's going to be the optimal plan for you to lose weight, but can you really do that? Yeah, it's perfect that you mentioned that cuz so there was this study actually that came back came out like I think it was four or five years ago. And I got, it's slipping off the top of my head. I can give it to you in the, in the show links or something. But uh, the, the basic gist of it was that what the researchers did was they studied dozens and dozens of different fad diets. And what they found was that it didn't matter which diet you actually implemented. The one that worked for people was the ones that people actually stuck with. Yeah. So it didn't matter if you were doing you know, like a keto diet or, you know, low carb or, you know, protein only, whatever it was. Well, these new things, this intermittent fasting stuff. Yeah. So all this stuff, though, the ones that work are the ones that people stick with. So you can you can come up with all this, you know, mumbo jumbo theoretical work about, you know, this is the best one. We know statistically that this is the best one. <laughs> right. But if somebody can't actually stick with it, they'll it'll fail them. And the same exact thing is true with investing. You know, it's interesting because I've always, back in the day, back in the day, when I did, you know, comprehensive financial planning, right? One of the things that really mystified me all the time was this idea of doing a budget for people. Because you do all this budgeting work and you spend all this time and sharpen the pencil and come up with, you know, you're going to spend $32 a month on your hair and your nails and your this and your that and and, and your and your gas. We're going to budget, you know, uh, $85 a month to fill up your cars and all that. And then you do all this work and they walk outside after you're all done with this and they buy an ice cream cone that wasn't on budget and the whole thing's blown. <laughs> well, and that's part of it is that, especially with financial planning and budgeting, things are variable. You know, yeah. you, you have, like, I just had relatives in town for the last week. Sorry. And so sorry. You know, so sorry. It, but it blows up everything. You yeah. know, you start, you're going out to dinner and you're, you're changing, you know, what you consistently eat, your, your whole schedule changes. So, and that's just life. I mean, life is variable. Life changes over time. And you've got to, got you got to customize this stuff over the course of time to really, you know, meet the the changing ch times that we're all experiencing. So, and that's, I think, kind of the other big aspect that especially I've started focusing on in the last, really the last five years or so is that I wrote a paper about 18 months ago called All Duration Investing. And yeah, I want to get it, into that. What it does is I focus a lot on time management now. And because when it comes to financial planning, I think time management is really the thing that pretty much all of us struggle with because we've got, you know, when you think of it across different time horizons, we've all got these uncertain liabilities that we have across time. And we've got, say, monthly expenses. It could be your credit card bill, your rent, your mortgage. And then you've got more 
sort of intermediate time horizons and liabilities that are maybe you want to you know save some money for a house down payment or you you want to put some money aside for your kids tuition or something like that and then you've got more like super long term expenses things like we think about retirement and healthcare stuff and just saving in general for the long term and there's a lot of uncertainty navigating all these different time horizons and what i've started to focus on a lot in the last few years, especially since I wrote this paper was I actually quantified in the paper. I built a model for actually being able to quantify the time horizons of very specific assets. And you you can actually implement any strategy into the time horizons too, where, for example, the stock market in this model comes out to like a 17 year instrument. The Mm -hmm. aggregate bond market is basically something that's like a five year instrument. If you blended a 60-40 portfolio, that comes out to like a 12-year instrument. And so what you can kind of start to do with all this stuff is you can you can begin to think of your life almost in the same way that an insurance company or a big pension fund does. Because they implement these strategies that are called asset liability matching strategies, where these companies have a specific amount of outflows that they can predict every month or every year. And they have to have assets that correspond to that. You can't have these big asset liability matches that like, if you're familiar with like what the banking system just went through earlier this year. Oh yeah. Perfect example. Yeah. Those banks all had huge asset liability mismatches. They owned a lot of long-term bonds and they ended up needing short-term outflows and they couldn't do that without taking losses on the long-term bonds. And that's the situation that you never want to find yourself in. And so by necessity, we all have some balance of, different liabilities across different time horizons. And our portfolios need to reflect that. So everybody needs to hold some cash. Cash is the, you know, the super short-term instrument. Everybody should hold some, probably some high yield savings or T-bills. Everybody should hold some more intermediate assets. And then everybody should hold long-term assets. And when you can start to put everything into these time horizons, I've found that, especially when you take care of the short-term stuff, the certainty that people have with this approach is so high because it gives you clarity, not only about how much money you're going to have across certain time horizons, but it gives you just clarity about what the purpose of the assets are that are actually in your portfolio rather than just putting together, you know, a lot of people, the old asset management style was we cobble together a portfolio of say 60, 40. And when you do that, let's just say for simplicity, you buy one 60, 40 fund. Well, the problem with that portfolio is that you're, yeah, sure, you're very diversified. You you could be very low fee, very tax efficient. But the problem is you have one time horizon in that portfolio. And if you need liquidity and the stock and bond piece both fall in a year like 2022, you're kind of screwed. You find yourself in the same position as the banks because you need liquidity and you don't have it in that portfolio unless you take a loss. And when you oh, take, gotcha, yeah. when you sell some portion of that portfolio, you can't go in and just sell the treasury bills. You have to sell everything. So you're selling the equities, the bonds, everything basically inside of the underlying portfolio. And that's a, that is a behavioral problem that is directly due to the fact that you had an inherent asset liability mismatch inside of the asset side of your portfolios relative to your liability outflows. So you're looking at uh, the differential as I might think about this right now is first looking at time horizon matching number one, but also looking at uh, getting away from a homogenized portfolio to more of a salad bowl approach. 
Totally. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. So that's the other, one of the other interesting things that I've kind of, cause I used to, gosh, five, six years ago, I always, I try to always way back, way back, way back, five, five years, yeah. way back. <laughs> but, but I always try to defer towards simplicity. And so I, I would build these very simple sort of almost like Boglehead style portfolios. And I, as I navigated time increasing with people, I realized, you know, a lot of these portfolios, you, for instance, if you buy a bond aggregate, people think of a bond aggregate as like this sort of safe instrument, but it's really not. It's really, I mean, it's relatively safe compared to the stock market, but it's still a five-year instrument. And five years in terms of someone's financial plan is actually a really long time. Yeah, sure. Most people don't even think of the stock market as being more than a five-year instrument, even though I, I think they should. But anyways, when you when you start implementing these even very simplified portfolios, I sort of realized it actually makes sense to break these components up even more. Like you have to, the bond aggregate technically owns some treasury bills and short-term stuff in it. But for most people, they actually need to break that homogenized component up. They should it's fine to hold a five-year instrument if you have five-year liabilities, but it actually makes sense to break up some component of that portfolio into something even more short-term so that you've got really different buckets across these different time horizons to meet your needs. But the one thing that I would say is that there is a point that it's like, all right, that's too much. Like <laughs> it's too much breaking it apart. Totally. You know, because it, it becomes, it becomes unmanageable. It becomes nothing more than, uh, it becomes, let's also state it's becomes confusing for the client to see 75 different investments you know, instead of buying the S and P five hundred, you buy you buy every single sector. Like one of the things we do yeah. is we do break down uh, large, mid, and small. I'm just talking about equities now. Large, mid, and small caps, and then we split it with value growth blend. Right. This way, we could slant slant and slope and, and tilt the portfolio if we want to. Right. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if we if we if we have that desire to, right, right. So, for example, in 2022, we were heavily slanted into into value, which Saves us a great deal of money, right? Um, we have longer term, shorter term uh, ranges uh, of domestic uh, fixed income. So slanted all to low duration in 2022 as an example. 2022 is the worst example because no matter what decision you made, it was bad, right? Yeah. Good decisions were like that's not that that's great decision, but ugh, that's not so good. But when when we look at this, I mean. The, the 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 breakdown is very helpful. And I would assume, making an assumption, tell me if I'm right, but if you look at then somebody with a longer-term time horizon, you can then translate that into more equities or more longer-term time horizon investing. So you match the investment to the time horizon. that You may get to the same place, but it, it, it gives it a different view and a, a different feel. Exactly. Yeah, and I've found, you know, even using the example of someone who – is a young investor who has the ability to be more aggressive because they've, they've just got so much more runway, more time to work with. You still, it's still really useful to start from the short end. And, you know, I, just to be clear, I, we only use like four or five time horizons typically in this. Cause when I first wrote the paper, I wrote the paper with lots and lots of time horizons because it was literally designed to sort of give people a very broad perspective. But in terms of actual implementation, I think it's useful to think in terms of, of a few very specific time horizons. And what I've found is that basically looking at these things in terms of 
the super short term, so under one year, and then kind of one to two years, and then two to five, five to 15 years, and then 15 plus. And mm-hmm. those are the big time horizons that matter most. And you can you can block assets into each one of these time horizons in a way that starting with the short-term stuff, if you take care of the short-term stuff, that typically gives you enough certainty to then have enough really behavioral bandwidth to navigate all of the long-term stuff, all the stuff that's going to be really volatile over the course of a, say, a multi-year, multi-decade period. So for a young investor, you want to go in and look at things and basically, you know, this is, it's highly customized. So you, you know, it's hard to, to make big generalities about it, but in, in a general sense, people should have, say, something like two years worth of emergency funds and then covering at least one year of actual liability outflows. And so, just for simplicity, you're taking three years worth of money and you're basically blocking that into your, say, your sub two year stuff. You're, so, you've got like kind of like a two year allocation of just super short term stuff. It's probably CDs, T bills, money market funds, you know, maybe a little bit in the bank account, try not to keep too much in your bank account because banks are robbing you basically in a, mm. an environment where T-bills are yielding five and a half percent. But then you can kind of, that opens up a lot of bandwidth then for a young investor to be very aggressive where they can then start to think of all the long-term stuff and really properly allocate that in a way where they've got an aggressive allocation, but they're also sort of barbelled in this way where they've got all of their short-term liabilities covered in a way where they're comfortable and they can always look at the long-term stuff and say, hey, sure, the stock market is down 25% this year, but I know that I've compartmentalized this in my asset allocation where this is a long-term instrument. I don't need to worry about what it does inside of 18 months because it's literally there as like an 18-year instrument or whatever. Yeah. And that opens up a lot of bandwidth for investors to really, I think discipline really is, it's the the key to unlocking good investment performance and using this sort of time blocking approach. It gives people so much certainty about the short-term stuff that yeah. it actually allows them to perform better with the assets that are much more volatile, higher mm-hmm. performing, because you don't get pulled into this whole narrative game of, Oh, the stock market is down 18 or, or in the last 18 months by, you know, 25, 30%. And I need to abandon ship or something. And that's that's usually the biggest mistake people make is they misjudge the time horizons of the long-term volatile instruments. Right. Then that's, this is the key point here, I think, right now. What you're saying, I don't know exactly what you're saying, but it sounds like it's gonna be the key point here about clients, people, retail investors. You know, looking at this and saying, "Oh no, not a good." I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the investor who's like wants to be a market timer. We could. That's a topic for another discussion. But you know, I'm talking about the the average investor, right? Is is yeah is is watching a uh, an election and saying, "I hate that president. He's going to be bad for us, and we should be out." Like, wait, wait, what exactly? Do you do you really understand how this may or may not work? I mean, yeah, and that's. I think that's you know to. To give people more credit than than it may sound like, we're it's really hard to understand the time horizon oh, of the yeah. stock market right. because the stock market doesn't really have you know, it, it's not like a bond. I mean, a bond you can look at a ten year treasury bond and say, 
okay, I know, I know pretty much all the information about this instrument that I need to know. I know the time horizon, the credit quality. I even know the income that it's going to pay me every year. Whereas with the stock market, and this is what I think causes so much confusion with a lot of the narratives we see in like the financial media and just the way we talk and think about the stock market in general is nobody really knows what is the time horizon of the underlying 500 companies in the S&P 500? Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows. And the model that I use for this is it's it's a general model, but it's at least it's using sort of a break-even analysis where I think we're giving at least some reasonably uh, accurate model for understanding what is a general time horizon for reasonably, I think, understanding the way the stock market should perform over certain periods. And that that sort of like thinking of it in terms of this multi-decade instrument, I think gives people at least some perspective on, okay, what is the proper time horizon over which I should actually judge the S&P 500? Is it, is it one month? Is it one day like CNBC wants us to think or whatever? And this model puts it into very specific buckets where you then say, okay, no, no, no. The stock market is serving a very specific long-term purpose. And if you're trying to turn it into a one month or one year instrument, then, you know, good luck. Lots of traders do that. Some traders are very, very good at turning these long-term instruments into short-term income generating instruments or whatever, but that it's damn hard to do because inherently that instrument is designed to perform in the long run. Yeah. So now that we've just discussed the benefits of looking at the long-term situation, ignoring the short-term noise and all let's talk about the short-term noise. <laughs> okay. So um, recently this week, there was a U.S. debt downgrade, right? What Fitch downgraded from a AAA to a AA plus. There was a lot of reasons. As a matter of fact, at the top of the show, I talked about all the different reasons that, that Fitch gave. And, and I thought actually some of them were like, yeah, yeah, huh? That makes sense. You know that we, uh-huh. that we that we don't have budgets. That we uh, basically uh, said that there's no debt ceiling through 2025, um, which is unbelievable, right? Just saying, just you know, pillage pillage the economy as much as you want, spend as much as you want, which is probably one of the reasons why markets are all excited about things. Um, but what what do you what what is it? Does it matter for bonds? Do you think this is a big issue? I, I have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, you know, these are always good topics to, I think, try to give some clarity about. This is another thing that I write a lot about macroeconomics and just, you know, a lot of these sort of short-term narratives in general, because a lot of my work, I think, is actually helping people understand this stuff so that they can navigate so much of the short-term noise. Because especially with the a lot of the financial media, I think, is incentivized to sort of be a little bit hyperbolic. Of course. You, you you want you want eyeballs, right? You know, and that the oftentimes the best way to get eyeballs is to be a little bit overly dramatic. Whereas the vast majority of financial news is actually really boring, you know? Mm-hmm. Like a real a, a real honest news day in the financial markets is basically, hey guys, nothing happened today. It the stock market moved a little bit, interest rates moved a tiny bit, but on the whole it was not interesting as a, as versus the headline that has to give a reason and rationale. Right. You know, you know traders so, outnumbered, uh, sellers outnumbered, uh, uh, buyers today and blah, 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 blah. This is, yeah. that, you know, or, exactly. or when they give the report on, you know, a, a thing, the XYZ company reporting and shut up, 
2%, you know, <laughs> surged 1%. It's like, okay. Right. It's like watching the evening news. You know, you yeah. don't hear about, you know, uh, the, the, the honest evening news report. But hey, uh, it was another boring day for human civilization. Not much happened today. But instead, all you right. hear is sun came up, a, sun came it down. It was a robbery on right. 34th yeah. Street. And, right. you know, the robber got away. There was a big car chase. And, you know, they don't talk about the fact that 99% of humanity didn't really do much. Yeah, interesting sure. That. Sure. So anyways, but the with the U.S. debt downgrade, it's interesting. So like you alluded to, there are lots of very practical reasons for, I think, downgrading the debt of the United States because the obviously the last few years have been sort of, you know, out of control government spending. And you can make an argument that the U.S. government's spending situation is seems to be getting worse and worse mm -hmm. and is, you know, the the interest rate expenses are seem a little bit out of control. And but at the same time, when I think about this, when I think of especially the the quality of the U.S. government's debt, I think a lot of people misunderstand the reality that the U.S. government's debt isn't high quality because the U.S. government is necessarily this special or unique entity, but mainly because the underlying U.S. private sector is really unique in the sense that the underlying U.S. economy is so productive, generates so much output that the U.S. government just so happens to be the entity that is able to tax all of that domestic income. Well, that's what and it is. So it's like a road, over, a great road that everybody goes through all the time because they really love that road with a toll. Right. Yeah. So it's it's this thing where, you know, I think a lot of people think of the, the government as like this sort of like foreign entity almost or something. And the reality is that, you know, they are, the U.S. government and the U.S. private sector are symbiotic in a lot of ways. And the, the government derives its strength directly from the U.S. private sector and its ability to tax that income. And really what they're really doing, even when they, they issue bonds, is they're essentially leveraging the power of the U.S. domestic sector. And the the bond issue is interesting because the I mean, in an aggregate sense, and I think people all know this sort of intuitively, but maybe think of it more like a, the government versus a household where the government cannot run out of money. And that's sort of the un, it's sort of the uncomfortable truth of the well, way that the, you know, the we, aggregate government works. Colin, here's the so, thing. It's like the game Monopoly. Did you ever read the rules from the game of Monopoly? Yeah, the banker never runs out of money, right? Not only does the banker not run out of money, but the banker, if they do run out of money, can take any piece of paper, write any number on it, and use it as a banknote. Right. That's the game Monopoly. It's in the rules. Which is, you know, it's sort of a crazy thing to think about in terms of the way the national government works, but the national government doesn't operate the same way as a household. And so, you know, the house, uh, household, like I I would prefer to pay down all my debts probably, you mm -hmm. know, or, well, I'm, I'm locked into such a low mortgage rate that that's not really true. But like, in general... Most households would like to pay down their debts or especially reduce expensive debts. And and that's, I think, the big difference is that at an, the government is it operates basically like a big aggregated sector. And the government is such a big component of the economy and just the way that all of us operate in terms of even just establishing rules and providing, you know, basic guidelines for the way, you know, we do things that it ends up being by necessity a, a pretty big component of the art of the of the overall economy. I think mm -hmm. we can, 
you know, there, it's reasonable to have a debate that like, like me personally, I think the government is too big in a lot of ways, especially oh. I think at the state and local level, probably. But, you know, you can argue about the size of the government, but the ability to pay is never in doubt. The Federal Reserve will never run out of ink for its printing presses. And so when we start thinking about it from that sense, then it becomes really the the rating game, I think, becomes really a relative rating game. And you have to start asking yourself, okay, well, out of all the national governments that exist, it's given that all these national governments have printing presses, essentially, that none of them can technically run out of money. Like Zimbabwe never ran out of money. Oh no, They ran out of really demand for their money. And that's the essential question is when you start thinking of this in a relative game, what entity is more powerful and has more income drawing ability and credit quality than the U.S. government? Correct. My view basically yep. is Nobody. There, there is no entity. And you, by the way, you could – Colin, let, let, let's shoehorn this into an abstract discussion just for a moment. Keep it quick. But how the hell would any of this work with a unified currency a la Bitcoin? God, I, well, I mean, that's the that's the crazy thing is that if you had a if you had a let's say a, a Bitcoin um, fractional re- reserve system in essence where bitcoin was the only currency that existed my basic view i've written a, i've had a lot of arguments with bitcoin people about this over the years my basic argument is that what would happen is the people would start turning the bitcoin system into a credit system they'd start borrowing against their bitcoin and they'd basically start they'd create essentially a replication of the system we have now of which course is where of course and, and, yeah where and the, it would be a bigger problem each country could not regulate their own Underlying economy, the basic way that the economies run, and this is where the EU got a little bit weird, okay? But but the basic way that an economy run is that you can regulate things based on a common currency for the place that you're regulating. Exactly. And this whole Bitcoin idea that it's going to replace is asinine. Yeah. It. I'm not saying Bitcoin's bad. It's just not going to become a current currency for countries around the world. Yeah, because it. It it creates one monetary policy for, you know, if every country in the world started using one currency, you'd have one monetary policy. Somebody has to run that monetary policy, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin has a fixed monetary policy, which is, you know, arguably it's problematic in lots of different ways because then you don't have the flexibility to actually be able to navigate certain environments. I mean, like, you know, what happens if, the United States goes into a big war. I mean, this is really one of the big benefits of having a flexible currency is that you can sort of navigate the the things that happen over time. You yeah. know, we go into World War II. Well, we printed a, a ton of money during World War II. And the reason for that was we needed to pay people yeah. to actually be able to do the things that needed to be done to win the war. And when you have a fixed monetary policy or a fixed money supply – you either can't do that or by necessity, you have to start creating credit against the reserve currency yeah. that you have in place. Crazy. And that, you know, that just creates a different version of the system we already have. And you even you even see this happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem where people borrow against cryptocurrency and they're you're creating all of these credit systems. It's not really well, how did that work. By the way, how did that work out? 
Yeah, it's not really a fixed money supply system. We, they tried the to do. Place. They tried to do a, a leverage on leverage on leverage on leverage on leverage. I don't want to talk about Bitcoin anymore. I'm going to cut this conversation short right now because it's annoying <laughs> the hell out of me. Seriously, because it's just it's just it's just the stupidity about some of these theories. Again, as a speculative well, investment, have at it. Well, have at it. Yeah, exactly. It's a speculative instrument. It, it certainly you can make a really strong argument that it has a lot of value. I mean, if you live in Zimbabwe and mm-hmm. or whatnot, you live in a third world country. God, an asset like Bitcoin actually might be really, really valuable for you. You live in the developed world. The argument for it is a lot less compelling because the the currencies are so much more stable. So exactly. But the bottom line, like going just to tie up this point, fixed money supply systems. They never, ever work. They've never worked in human history. Credit systems always, always grow off of fixed money supply systems, whether it's the, you know, using conch shells as currency or, you know, sticks. Gold, or gold. How about gold? gold. gold. Even, using the, even using the, the reserve currency system that we have with, you know, literal central bank reserves. You still banks now are the primary issuers of, of money because they issue credit mm-hmm. leveraged basically from the reserve currency. So it, it ever money always turns into a credit based system because money is always a system of basically promises between private parties. Right. Let's get back to this Fitch downgrade for one second, wrap this up and tie a bow on this one. Point is, as I see it, 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 it it's going to lead to a lot more or a lot less maneuverability by the Fed due to the fact that now it's a higher cost item. We saw that last week um, when this came out, yields spiked. And the thing is, we're seeing better than expected economic news, consumer confidence, um, and employment is stubbornly strong. And if that's the case, it seems to me that this is going to make the Fed's job a lot higher, harder, especially because now you have a higher debt service on the instrument. And they just issued, I think, last week or the week before, another trillion dollars to keep up with the expenditures that they have that you know weren't budgeted or whatever. Do you think there is some issue with regard to owning longer term, longer duration bonds at this point? Well, you just have a ton of interest rate risk there where, you know, let's say that, you know, the scenario that you just kind of hashed out actually continues to sort of get worse. Let's, let's, be even more extreme and say that we're a lot of people have compared this environment to like the 1970s or the 1940s. And in those environments, you got basically a double bump in inflation. So you had a big initial spike in inflation. Inflation came down. The central bank kind of started to ease or, or, you know, in a lot of ways, relaxed policy. And then you got a double, you got a, a second big bump in inflation. And that's something that worries policymakers a lot. And in that sort of an environment, the Fed's job basically means that they're going to be interest rates might not just be higher. They might have to actually raise may- interest rates higher. even yeah. more. Right, right. So to really snuff this well, out, because ultimately be honest, the way they haven't snuffed out anything, they've just we're just better than, you know, in other words, I don't think if they did anything, we'd have that much differential in a year ago period numbers, especially because they redesigned how interest uh, the CPI is calculated about four months ago, right? Uh, and the whole methodology and statistical mathematical process of that is looking at shorter term versus longer term, and they changed a couple of things. They only do that, by the way, when they want the number to come down. They've done this yeah. before. But the point is, when you look at how much interest rate we've increased, which is enormous, enormous, right, over the last year, and we're still cruising along pretty well. 
I, yeah, I it's interesting. How- there, there's this big debate about the, you know, Milton Friedman said that monetary policy has these long and variable lags. It's it's interesting to look at this sort of stuff and see, you know, how long and variable are these lags really mm-hmm. going to be before people start talking about having to do something else. I mean, the trouble, I think one of the big troubles with monetary policy so far is that fiscal policy, the government's spending basically in the deficit has been much larger than a lot of people expected in the last 12 months. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of causing this, you know, almost they're almost working against the Fed in a lot of ways on the the side of sure. the Treasury in a in a way that is you could argue is kind of counterproductive to the goals of the Fed. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, the there's a lot of things going on right now that can kind of appease anybody's narrative, sure. whether it's. You know, when you look at things like the real estate market is not it's held up better than people expected. Certainly, I think so far. But if you look at a lot of the underlying data, I mean, things like if you look at the housing market index or even like, you know, new home sales, existing home sales, the data is very, very weak by any sort of historical measure. And don't let's not even talk about commercial property. Commercials down. Yeah. What prices are down 17 percent from the peak. So there are these weird pockets. I mean, when you look at broader credit trends, consumer borrowing has started to really pull back. Total lending in the in the banking system is very low now. You look at like the senior loan survey, uh, the most recent one that came out has shown, or really all of the recent ones that have come out have shown a big tightening in bank lending standards. And so it's going to, the next 18 to 24 months are going to be really interesting because it's, the longer, and this is one of the things I've been saying for the last, really the last like year or so, is that the the hard part to navigate with, especially with debt and credit cycles, is that it, higher interest rates don't have an immediate impact on the actual contracts that are outstanding because all these contracts mature over time. So mm-hmm. if you had, you know, if you had a, a two-year loan that you locked in two years ago at zero percent, well, that thing's not going to adjust for two years. But if the Fed is still really tight with high interest rates in two years, well, you're rolling over to that debt contract at totally different terms. Sure. And so the longer and longer this goes on, you know, the way I, I've sort of described the, the right way to think about this is the longer and longer that the Fed remains really, really tight, the higher the sort of asymmetric risks are in the economy, because the more and more of these long-term debt contracts end up rolling over over time. And this is going to become obviously a big problem in the commercial real estate market as time goes on. But it's also going to impact the household sector where more and more people are are looking at sort of, you know, crazy interest rate payments on credit cards and even short-term liabilities that are going to force them to start bringing things in to some degree. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, the longer the Fed stays tight, does it actually start to have sort of a multiplier effect in terms of how much it's going to impact the economy? So, yeah, I don't. It hasn't had a big impact yet, but I'd, well, I'd I'd like, I I, I, I challenge you to look at it like this, if, if you will. Think about a tide that goes out, and think about a coral reef that's out there, right? So the coral reef is covered up, and um, you know this is good times, right? Where there's a lot of water. Water's everywhere. Water is uh, covering up and in a good way protecting the coral reef. And as you get the tide that goes out, and let's say more than the tide going out, the water is drying up. And as that happens, part of the coral reef 
starts to emerge and be seen. And now it's out there drying up and a lot of the, 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 the life of it is coming off off the top of it, okay? But yet there's pockets inside the coral reef, the rocks, if you will, that still have like water in there, right? There's just water in there, standing water, but it's water. And you're looking at, well, it's all dry here, but look at this one. This is a deep water pocket right here. There's still plenty of water. I, 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 I present to the, the idea that the water is going out and what we're seeing, as you have described, in certain areas that aren't so bad are just the fact that residual water is still hanging around, but that is being soaked up. Yeah, it's- Was that too much? I, was that too much of a visual? No, it's a good narrative because, it, and that's part of it is that monetary policy, especially raising interest rates, is a lot like the tide just going out because it it impacts everything in this sort of general sense. It's not a very precise instrument. You know, monetary policy, especially with interest rates, it doesn't have this very acute effect on anything where you know, like with fiscal policy, you can actually implement fiscal policy theoretically in this very precise way where you can raise taxes on a very specific group of people or you can send money to a very specific group of people. Whereas with raising interest rates, the Fed just sort of says, okay, we're raising this sort of baseline interest rate and this is going to impact lots of stuff, but it's going to impact lots of stuff in a sort of generalized way. And so it's, it's a, I mean, this is why they call monetary policy a very blunt instrument because it's it's sort of like hitting everything with a sledgehammer a little bit. And you just hope that you you break enough of the right stuff that you end up slowing things down in a in a broad sense. So yeah, it's it's gonna be interesting to see over the course of the next 18 months as the as the the economy seems to stay a little stronger than expected. Inflation is staying, you know, certainly higher than the Fed is comfortable with. And that's going to force the Fed to stay higher for longer. And you know, this is a this is a weird one because it's it's kind of good and bad in the Well, yeah, sense there's an unexpected surprise, is which I want to talk to you about next is is like, wow, wait a second. Hold on a minute. Are you telling me that if I have money in a money market, I can earn four to five percent? Whereas Tina was alive, right? There is no other alternative. We had to put our money in stocks, bonds, and things of that nature. And now I've come to the position that, you know, cash is an interesting alternative to a lot of things. It's a benefit. Right now I'm getting money on my cash, which is like, I'm getting, well, wait a minute, hold on a second. I got $600 this month on this portfolio just in the in interest? Wow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or, or whatever it is. Um, and... Which, and, then you, and you multiply that around, that it starts to add up to some serious serious dough. But yeah, what's interesting well, is I, I took the 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 position recently that bonds. I asked myself, what what is the point of bonds? Short term bonds. What's what you know? What's the point of bonds? The bonds point is, and you could push this into your time horizon discussion. Same discussion. It's to provide a buffer. It's to provide accessibility. It's to provide some interest and stability. Anything else? Yep. Is there anything else there? There's nothing else there, is there? No. I mean, if you go into foreign bonds, maybe opportunity from currency and things like that, you can look at that. Junk bonds, opportunity from upgrades, things. I'm talking about the short-term, short-duration, high-quality bonds. And I said, wait, you know, that reminds me of something. That reminds me of the money markets paying 5.5% or 5%, yep. whatever it is, right? And I said, I'm shifting a lot of money from midterm bonds, let's say, to mid-duration bonds, you know, you're, you're three to sevens, three to tens, you know, somewhere there, right? To money markets, 
because I got all the components of what I want and no risk. Yeah. And I don't well, know. What's interesting. I don't know what the so, flaw is in that. When I um when I constructed this model for the all duration paper, I one of the things that kept coming up was a very specific set of instruments kept coming up looking like very, very long-term things. And specifically, it was things like managed futures, uh, gold and ultra long-term treasury bills or treasury bonds, sorry, were the the three instruments that kept coming up as these ultra long-term instruments. And I realized when I was working it through, I was like, you know what those things operate a lot like is they operate a lot like insurance. Mm. And those things, because when you think of insurance, what is insurance in a financial plan? It's typically an ultra long duration instrument that actually generates a pretty crappy return in general, because you're just paying out a premium. It, I mean, theoretically, like you buy a 20 year term life insurance, you're buying an ultra long term asset that is really designed to lose money every single year, unless something strange happens. If you die, then it pays this huge asymmetric real return. And that's a lot what these ultra long-term instruments look like. I mean, a long-term treasury bond basically is an instrument that, especially in today's environment, like it's going to pay you three, 4%, something like that on average. And every year it's paying you this low real return. But in the case of a deflation or in the case, especially of like a financial panic where the Fed cuts rates, that thing will go crazy. It'll go up 50, 60% or something inside of, you know, a multi-year period inside of an environment like that. And so it provides this insurance like hedge basically. And so when I think of the portfolio construction process, I think of those types of instruments very specifically as, you know, does the investor need portfolio insurance? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question, right? Yep. Yeah. If so, then these instruments could be appropriate, but they need to be bucketed in this very specific way where, you know, the investor knows these things are for insurance. These are not your gold position does not replace your equity position. Your your 30 year T bond position does not replace your aggregate bond position or your T bill position. It is a totally different type of instrument. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing with T bills and money market funds these days is that, like you alluded to, the the real purpose of insurance is to provide you with really short term real returns that are going to give you a lot of certainty to be able to navigate life's uncertainty. And so T-bills and money market funds that are yielding five, five and a half percent or so, they achieve all those goals. And so I think you could argue that in this sort of an environment, the it's unique enough that these instruments provide you with what is essentially a form of ultra safe insurance because of the the high interest rate that they pay relative to even, you know, you can calculate inflation a million in different ways, but like the latest CPI was somewhere around 3%. So, hey, getting a five and a half percent three month or, or six month treasury bill, that is a heck of a good deal. And, and that, 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 I can't that, remember. that kills the whole idea of inflation of uh, insurance to a degree, if in fact it, it's safe. Yeah, well, you could argue it is. It yeah. you don't even need right. other forms of insurance, right. arguably. If you if you just have a bucket that is this short term money market fund or right. short term treasury bill component, I think you could argue that that 
That it's giving you all the types of insurance that you actually need in a portfolio. But that's today. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen six months from now yeah. a year, but that's that's today. And I agree with you wholeheartedly on that, you know, but a lot of uh, investment advisors and a lot of people wonder, wait, 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 let me get this straight. Why, you, 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 you got my money in cash? Why do I need you to do that for? I'm like, well, because we're rolling treasuries, we're laddering, we're, um, but, but aside from that, it's not the point. The point is that's right now. You know, yeah. we'll go back to something else when it's time, but you, because we, we have found that for you to be the optimal place. Well, can I just do that in, in my money market at my bank? No, you can't. Well, it's funny, you know, we have a lot of debates in this industry about active versus passive investing. And, and I always tell people cash is the most active instrument in the entire financial system. Cause it's essentially an point. overnight instrument. Yep, yep. It matures every day. And a lot of people don't like being hands-on with their money, with their cash. But I always tell people, Hey, the banking system thrives in large part because they think or they want you to be too lazy with actually being hands-on with your money. So you could even argue, like I laugh all the time because I see these like high yield savings accounts that pay like 4% these days. And I'm like, man, you could buy, you could buy a three, six, nine month treasury bill ladder these days that is going to pay five and a half percent state tax free, virtually no fees. And the bank is basically trying to sell you this 4% yielding instrument as being remotely similar. But in reality, the fact that you're basically being too lazy to roll a treasury bill ladder once every three, six months is costing you essentially 1.5% on your cash because the banks are in there. And trust me, they have full departments that are in there being ultra active, managing these cash positions. You look at a money market fund, a money market fund is way more active than even most mutual funds. You just don't see it because all you see is the ticker symbol MMMMMMM in your in right. your portfolio there. Sure, right. It doesn't look active to you, but that portfolio under the belly of the beast is ultra active and and they're charging you what is essentially a huge opportunity cost in a lot of cases by paying you say 4% when if you were a little more hands-on, you could be earning five and a half percent state tax free or so. Mm, good stuff. We have to cut it right there. Colin Roche, founder and chief investment officer, CIO, as we say, of Discipline Funds. All the information on where to find them is over on the show notes of episode number 828 on the disciplinedinvestor.com. So uh, check that out. Colin, thanks so much. We're going to have you on before uh, the next round of 10 years passes, way before. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Andrew. All right, buddy boy. See you. Thanks. And that's where we end this show this week on the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Like I said, make sure to go over and check out the show notes. you find more about where what Cullen is doing and take, take a look at his, his great book and his writings. Very interesting stuff. Great show. Thanks for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again uh, real soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition... The information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results, and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, 
including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 